Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Joining me today is a guy that I've known and worked with and admired for a while now, uh, Dan Primack. Uh, Dan's the business editor for Axios. He's the lead writer for Axios Pro Rata. Um, I think as the listeners of this podcast know, Axios is the, the leading newsletter in the tech and venture space. So Dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, so you've been covering venture for you know a, a decade or, or more at this point. If if I asked you to just kind of look back uh, on the last decade and on your career and say, kind of, what's your favorite story? What do you think is the most interesting thing you've dealt with? What would it be? Oh God, the most interesting story. I mean, I. I think the most interesting ones obviously are kind of around when things go bad, right? You know, is you know, it's the whole when the plane lands, nobody cares. So I, I think kind of I unfortunately go back more than ten years. I go back about twenty years. So I remember kind of in the aftermath of of the dot com world, not so much the companies going under, but kind of what happened with a bunch of the venture capital firms, uh, kind of desperately trying to get money from their investors. Some of them kind of collapsing upon themselves. I'd say the most interesting though that there was a firm. Uh, that collapsed in part because of dot-com problems, in part because the two founding partners were having an affair with each other. That one was a fun one to cover, uh, in part because they really didn't want it to get known. Um, and ultimately, we we kind of discovered it. Uh, we we kind of got a little bit of proof because one of the uh, partner's cars kept uh, ending up at weird hours at the other partner's house, uh, and one of my colleagues uh, lived a couple blocks away. Yeah. I think that would probably be the most fun. the kind of oppo research we do in political campaigns. Yeah, I remember once you were, it was, I don't think it was this fun, but you were writing about the collapse of a fund, and you asked, like, why would anyone name a fund after themselves? It's such a dangerous thing. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, because you know, it's like too late for me to change that. At it, this I point. mean, it's tough. Look, I mean, you look at even something like a KKR, right? Like, you know, two, two of those, one of the K's and the R, you know, stuck around. One of them, you know, he's now passed away, but he left kind of in the middle of that to, to create his own firm. So, you know, it, it's... It is a risky thing to do. Even look at, you know, Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. You know, Byers left, you know, Caulfield passed away. It, these, yeah, it's uh, it's tricky to do. I think names like Blackstone or Excel or Sequoia uh, m- might stand the test of time a bit better. Right. And the Blackstone, actually, I always, I always thought it was a good name because it was, you know, Schwartzman, I guess in German, Schwartz is black. And in Greek, Peterson was stone or, or Petro, or something like that. So I thought, I thought it was kind of at least clever. Uh, Correct. Yeah, clever. But but if one of them were to leave, and obviously Peterson did, it, it doesn't look weird. Uh, right. Nobody really, nobody really noticed. Um, so so you kind of mentioned the, the late 90s and the, the dot-com bust and all of that. And you've been doing this for, for over 20 years. Do venture capitalists ever learn the lessons of the past or does greed just force us to keep making the same mistakes over and over again? I, th- I think greed kind of makes us keep doing the same mistakes over and over. I, I kind of like the way, though, that uh, I think it's Mark Andreessen who's put it this way, something along the lines of those who are around in the late 90s are risk averse for a reason. Those who've only been around, say, since 2005 uh, are don't have enough risk aversion. And, and either one can be bad and can be overplayed. I mean, the reality, though, is I, there's a lot of VCs who I think about five or six years ago, kind of in the midst of what was a bull tech market then, started to freak out a bit about valuations and round sizes, et cetera, and began to pull back. And those folks were all wrong in retrospect. You know, th- yeah. this has been the longest bull market, despite what's happened in the last couple of months. This has been not just the longest bull market. It's been a bull market that has just kind of walked its way through a pandemic and didn't seem to care for more than a couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, if, if anything, things got even better. Like I remember uh, in February of 2020, Jordan and I had a discussion of whether we were over-invested in telemedicine uh, and then COVID came and like, it, they all ended up being the greatest investments we ever made. 
because they'll, they'll yeah i mean what's what's happened has been remarkable and it's not just the valuations it's the round sizes too you, you know it, years ago i remember there was a company called amped mobile which was this mbno out of la and they raised i think it was like 200 million dollars maybe in a series b or a series c round it was a stunning amount of money for a company to raise in one of these rounds to the point that I remember it. And I think I wrote about it day after day. And ultimately the company doesn't succeed. And it was, it was, oh my God, can you believe they invested this much money in something that failed? There are $200 million rounds daily now, multiple ones that, yeah. that at least in my newsletter don't get more than the line because they're, they're become commonplace. Yeah. I mean, look, we do seed in series A and now we don't blink anymore when the, the, the series A valuation is nine figures. Um, although I think to your point of the last few months, it's starting to claw back uh, a, a little bit right now, um, but but still, things are pretty high. So we venture capitalists like to tell ourselves and tell other people that we are more virtuous than the rest of the finance mm. world because we are constructive. We are building companies. We're disrupting industries that are sort of totally entrenched and, and need to be changed. Um, is any of that true, or do we just tell us these, ourselves these things to feel better? I actually do think there's a little bit of legitimacy to that. I, I don't know if virtue is the right word because I, I, I think the end goal is the same, right? Which is which is create uh, returns for investors and, and profits for the for the partners themselves. But I, I do think, you know, people sometimes have asked me over the years, you know, why do you pick one company to write about over another company? You know, if there's 30 deals in a, in a day, why, why this one? And sometimes it's because, well, because this one, if it works, is going to cure a kind of cancer and this other one is just making another mattress, right? And 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 so like- Granted, there are now some mattress startups, but in general, <laughs> like in general, yeah, I, I do think that change the world stuff matters still, and and I do think you know the kind of the money of innovation and and funding of new ideas, not just the fifth thing of this, but but truly new ideas that can change the way we live. I mean, if you go back, and obviously you were involved with them, if you go back to something like an Uber, for example, I mean. That company, for all of the problems that, that occurred with it and all of the wonderful stories that people like me got to write about them, it legitimately changed the way all of us get around. And when I say all of us, I mean people in basically every city in the world, whether using Uber or Uber-like apps, that's a remarkable thing you know, in, in really the past 10 years. And, and whether that be in transportation or in medicine or in communications, I do think there is something, if not virtuous, certainly more interesting about it. And so when you look at some of the sort of trends going forward that people at least say a lot, um, to you, stuff like Web3 and Metaverse, are those just buzzwords that so people sound smart? Or do you think that's sort of the next version of Uber that is truly transformative? I'm not sold. And I just had this conversation with a former colleague uh, on the phone about 20 minutes ago. Uh, I, I know – so I'm 45 years old. I acknowledge that I'm <laughs> – Maybe I'm the wrong target demo, or maybe I'm just too old to get it, but I admit I still don't get it yet in terms of practical applications. I understand crypto as uh, as, a, as an asset class, right, as, as something speculative, as something to trade, just like I understand baseball cards and fine art and wine and yeah, stamps, right? Yeah. I, I get all of that. I understand the concept of you know virtual worlds, just like I understood Second Life years ago, and, and I understand video games. Uh, but that said... I still, I guess I'm a little bit more in the Aaron Levy, Phil Libin uh, world of I don't yet see the practical applications here beyond asset speculation, beyond gambling, essentially. And by the way, I like to gamble, so I understand that also as, as a business. The rest of it, I just haven't quite seen the use case yet. And to be honest, part of it is, and I understand the technology is continuing to evolve, but you know, blockchain-based technologies often are slower than traditional web technologies right now. And, and if you look over the last 30 years or even longer, 
most technological innovations have in part been about making things go faster. This is the opposite. This is making things go slower. So I, I'm, I'm still not sold yet, despite the you know, tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars going into this stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess at least the, the argument for where uh, crypto goes from being an asset class to an actual currency is, I guess, Web3 and the metaverse, which would be if you are now sort of existing in this new metaphysical realm and you are doing all of your transactions uh, completely virtually and digitally, um, there's no reason that Ethereum or Bitcoin or Solana or whatever it is shouldn't be an actual currency just like dollars and pesos. True. But, I, you know, one of the things, though, I think the pandemic showed us was that human nature is that we want to go out and do things in the physical world, right? You, you didn't have a bunch of, I mean, I'm sure there were some, but most people weren't saying, man, the problem, you know, in, in March or April of 2020 or 2021, the problem wasn't, oh man, I can't do all this stuff virtually. What a drag. It was, I can't go out. I can't go to a movie, to a game with my friends, you know, to a, even to a store in some cases, you know, a, a, some sort of shopping experience and certainly travel. So I'm not convinced that that metaverse really is what human nature wants. There are definitely times and things, for example, I, certainly e-commerce works better than the shopping mall trip for lots of people. But as the as the primary way that we interact with one another and even interact with commerce, I'm not so sure. So you think, look, obviously people spend a decent amount of time on their phones online, and arguably if the metaverse just becomes a new version of that, then they'll probably spend that in the metaverse. But you think they're not then spending additional discretionary time necessarily to have virtual experiences in lieu of actual physical experiences? I could I could see some, and and I I certainly see certain use cases. For example, right, like take a concert. For example, say say there's an artist and you want to see them, and they are not coming to your town, uh, and and you can so you could watch you know a virtual performance. Yeah, I, I could totally see that. But if they're coming to your town, you're going to see them in your town. Uh, and I think that's still what people are going to prefer. So again, I, I see use cases for it. But the idea that, to me, that it's going to become this dominant force, I'm not sold on. Yeah. Although I'll tell you this, my son went to a Travis Scott concert on Fortnite, and he definitely was not going to be allowed to go see Travis Scott live. <laughs> so that that one worked out, worked out pretty well for everybody. Um, so, you know, Given that you've been sort of really at the epicenter of, of this industry, and for our listeners, I, I really can't overstate kind of how central Dan is to everyone in the venture world and, and, and just like he sees stuff that almost no one else sees. Um, who are the figures that you have found kind of the most meaningful and interesting? And I could throw names at you like a Zuckerberg or Teal or, or you know, uh, Musk or whoever it is. But like who are the people that when you look back and say, okay, these are the people who really changed the world, and these are fascinating people to cover. So, okay, so I'll, so obviously, you're right, as you say, you know, Teal, Zuckerberg, Musk, et cetera. Teal, particularly, I think, because Founders Fund, which is the VC firm he he created, has kind of taken these uh, more interesting bets, I think, than most. Yep. So, I think there's something there. But there are others. Uh, so, um, Nubar Afanan, uh, who runs Flagship, what was Flagship Ventures, it's now called Flagship Pioneering in Boston. Uh, it's a biotech firm. They're the one that created Moderna, and and I don't mean they, you know, got a pitch deck and invested in Moderna. I mean they created it. Uh, they they're created one of it. several kind of biotech firms. Uh, Third Rock in Boston is another one. They basically go into their boardroom, kind of find academic research or kind of bring in uh, a scientist from somewhere, a biologist from somewhere, and try to create companies around ideas. And Moderna was one of those. And I remember covering it, you know, six, seven, eight years ago with, with this idea that mRNA was going to be something that basically, instead of taking a pill that would then affect your cells, you would do something where your cells would start to create the medicine itself and, and, and all the applications for that. Yeah. Well, that's a company, you know, when we talk about things that change the world, that that changed society, right? I mean, along with what Pfizer and BioNTech did, 
and BioNTech, the German company that worked with Pfizer is another startup, which actually the German government helped fund. Like they're the reason we can all go out and travel again. And that, you know, millions of people aren't dying. That's arguably more important than almost any startup, you know, of our lifetimes. Yeah, I think that's that, that's probably right. Who, who you may not want to say this, but like, if there was one person in the last twenty years that that you think the world could have done without, uh, who, who would that be? Oh, I mean, the the, the world could have done. I mean, we could have done without Elizabeth Holmes. That yeah, was yeah, obviously, that, that's obviously that's an mean, easy the, one. The, the, that's an easy jail. one. Yeah. There's a lot. Of, I mean, I I think to be honest that most failures in tech kind of teach us something about the future, right? So I don't think. You know, even, you know, you, you look at the failures of WeWork, you, you look at things like that. Um, look, I think we probably could have done without the guys from Juul. I think we probably could have done without them. I, I don't think that was uh, terribly helpful for, for anybody in the world, except for, you know, a, a small handful of people who maybe, you know, got off combustible cigarettes. Um, but in general, I, I think most failures, including kind of incredible flameouts, teach everybody a lesson of what not to do next time and then can make something better. Yeah. Speaking of Jewel, and this isn't even really a tech question, but just I've been wondering this lately. Isn't like the hard seltzer, white claw, isn't that just the jewel of alcohol? And and if so, why it's did Zima, Jewel, it's the Zima of 20, yeah, 2022. But, but is that what Jewel we're rightfully received rough regulatory treatment? Look, they tried to get us to invest or be involved, and we were like, you know, if I have kids, like I'm not gonna I don't want someone that makes their money selling, you know tobacco-like products to, to teenagers. But why doesn't the why don't the alcohol makers who make those products kind of face the same kind of scrutiny? It's a good question. I mean, alcohol companies have never faced much scrutiny, right? They, they've never they've never faced the kind of scrutiny that that cigarette companies did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe right. that's because they they never lied about it, right? You, I mean, you've, we've all known kind of the the, the you know the dangers of alcohol, right? In terms of what it does to us immediately and what the long term implications are. I think we've known that for hundreds of years that if you drink too much, your your liver is going to you know turn turn into mush. Uh, so I think that's maybe part of the reason why. And I think just as a society, we today have much more acceptance of alcohol. Remember, I mean, you're in New York, right? How many hundreds, if not thousands of bars are there? And yeah. you can Every smoke in bar. none of them. Yeah. Yep. I was at City Hall when we passed that bill. Yeah. I know. And I can tell you as somebody, and I know you were trying to protect the wait staffs and stuff. And I will tell you as somebody who used to wait tables, I always used to try to get the smoking section because that's where they drank the most. Right. I and mean, that's, that's where you made the most. That's, yeah. uh, that's probably right. Um, Twitter. So you're, you're a very prolific user of Twitter, obviously. Unfortunately. I would say, right. So I would imagine you would say it's just a part of your job. And you don't have any choice to it. How do you think about this sort of medium that, that clearly is helpful to reporters in terms of boosting your profile, your platform and everything else, and yet you know is so destructive to society overall? Yeah. So I start, you know, Twitter is interesting. Twitter for me has been like a lot of social media platforms that I had to kind of originally force myself to use it. And I, I remember when I did too, it was, um, they had just raised um, their series C funding, I think from IVP, a uh, venture capital firm and the partner over at IVP who did it uh, asked me if I was on it and I was on, but hadn't really used it. He said, try just, you know, power using it for a weekend. And I, I remember I was in New Orleans for the weekend. So I did, I, in, you know, intentionally tried to use it a lot and I did get kind of hooked to it in a way that I haven't on other platforms on Instagram, TikTok, uh, Snap, et cetera. I haven't in the same way. Uh, I mean, yeah, I do use it for my job. I don't use it that much outside my job, except for, you know, bitching about, you know, referee calls in, in certain sporting events. <laughs> I, and, and to be honest, I don't just use it 
to kind of promote my stories or colleagues' stories, although that's part of it, I view it a little bit, as somebody who's always worked remotely, I view it a little bit like a newsroom, uh, like an old bullpen newsroom where, where there's kind of ideas floating around. I can see what other people are thinking. I can throw something out and see what comes back, which can help kind of inform my thinking, just like, you know, just like an editorial meeting does inside of Axios or when I was at Fortune or other places. Um, yeah, it's, it's horrible for society. And I'll tell you, I think I get, I'm curious if you do, I think even though I am using it for work, I get that same little dopamine rush that other people get, right? When something gets retweeted a lot or liked a lot, I, th I and I, I hate that I get that, but it's definitely there. I'll also say though, I don't know for quote normal people, I, those who aren't in media or, or kind of media adjacent industries, why they're really on it, except to maybe get information, you know, on breaking news or an earthquake or something like that. Right. It, 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 it seems to me it would be just just so much noise and so toxic. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm probably not supposed to say this, but like, I don't do my own Twitter accounts because I don't want to be hooked on that dopamine. So like, you know, my office, when I have a new column or a new podcast comes out, they'll tweet, hey, new column, new podcast. Um, but deliberately, I don't even know the password for our, our Twitter account because I'm too afraid of of getting hooked on it uh, and then all of a sudden being, you know, kind of live, living in this toxic space. I'll also say on the toxicity part, uh, I, I definitely, you know, there, there have been moments on Twitter that have been uh, uncomfortable for me for a variety of reasons, including there was a piece I wrote uh, just before I left Fortune, just before the election in 2016, about kind of some of uh, Donald Trump's ties to white supremacists via social media. It was a study we had done. And, and, it, 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 and you know, what came back was obviously pretty uh, problematic uh, to the to the point where there was a little bit of concern about the fact that where I lived was a little too well known. But I also know that I'm in a position of a couple things. Uh, that there's the fact that I'm a guy as opposed to a woman. I know my female colleagues and peers, uh, their Twitter experience is a lot worse and a lot different than mine. I'm also older and kind of more established. I know for younger colleagues, it is worse. I, I think particularly if I was a young female journalist right now, Twitter would not be a place that I'd be terribly happy that my profession almost de facto requires me to be on. So it, it seems to me as someone who kind of works with the media a lot and has over the course of my career in, in different ways, that a lot of reporters now to me seem to be writing for a Twitter audience almost exclusively and that the articles they write, the columns they write are really written with in mind. How do I get the most likes? How do I get the most retweets? How do I make this audience of people who are active on Twitter and other reporters on Twitter happy? Um, and, and A, do you think that's true? And if so, is is that good for the public? I think it's true and I think it's bad for the public. You know, when, when we uh, formed Axios, uh, what now, five years ago, one of the things we talked about internally before we launched, and one of the reasons why Axios kind of has what we call smart brevity, which is relatively short stories, is we had seen in our analytics, whether, you know, from, my, from the co-founders who were Politico or from the former editor-in-chief who was at Bloomberg or me at Fortune and, and folks at other organizations, that almost no matter how long or short our stories were, they were being read for about the same amount of time. Obviously, there were some exceptions to that, but that was generally true. And and one of the things, and I, th I think it might have been Jim Bandahire, CEO, said is we need to write for readers and not write for other reporters uh, because reporters often find themselves writing for other reporters. And, and I think this right. speaks to what you said about Twitter. Yeah, so I don't think it's good. I don't think it serves the audience. I, I think the goal should be who is your audience and what is giving them the best information, not what necessarily travels the best via social. Look, there is value to that, obviously, because if you do think it is a good piece of information, or an important story, 
socialization obviously gets that to a wider audience. And if you think it's important, then you want more people to know the important thing. But there is kind of a fine line between that and writing something you know is just going to excite other journalists. It, it doesn't seem like most other editors are, are following kind of Van Dehy's views and advice on that. Is that because they don't realize it or because they're as caught up in the whole Twitter cycle as everyone else, and so they're just – they can't even see it? And, I think know, I think why. they're caught up in the Twitter cycle. But look, we we you know journalists love getting awards, and who gives awards? Well, other journalists give awards, right? So we're writing right. for each other. Like it, it's not some you know third party that does it. It's, it's your peers. You maybe want to get another job at some point. Well, how do you how do you build that? profile how do you build well you hope the editor at, at publication x is reading your stuff where are they going to find it twitter so yeah we write for each other a lot it's not good i i agree with you it should be for the audience and twitter as you say it, it exacerbates that is there a point where you worry that people look at media and say uh there's so little pretense of objectivity at this point um especially political media even more so than, than tech media that that they just dismiss the entire thing and and would basically say I'm just as good off just as well off being uninformed as I am just having someone tell me how I'm supposed to think. Yeah, and I think to be honest, and with with certain uh, people at this point, they're at that spot. I mean, you look at any you know public confidence poll of, of different industries. I mean, you know, media is down there with lawyers and politicians. I think politicians might actually do better. Congress doesn't, but politicians do better than media. We do terribly. Uh, people don't trust us. People don't believe us. Uh, and and it's not really because we've had a lot of you know big journalistic scandals like you know and there, obviously there are some you know you know story that is literally wrong or made up wor worst case no it's more because there is a belief that we are not coming from an honest place either because we're trying to push an agenda or as you said earlier because we're simply trying to do things for lack of a better term for clicks I will say though within that and this is particular to the tech world who gets very upset sometimes when there are negative stories written about tech companies or tech founders. This isn't exclusively true, but a lot of journalists and a lot of media organizations, like clicks matter ultimately because that's how we serve ads, but journalists don't get paid on clicks. I'll, I'll see sometimes, you know, a venture capitalist, right? Oh, you just wrote that for the clicks. Most journalists don't necessarily care. In fact, at a lot of organizations, journalists don't even know how many clicks they are getting or what stories of theirs are doing better than others. Right. Um, at the same time, though, it would seem to me that like take you know, Fox News obviously is the most profitable entity in all of media um, with a very clear business model of only appealing to, to one side. And I would say the New York Times has adopted the exact same model on the other side and basically said we can sell out, you know, kind of anti-capitalist, anti-business, anti-Republican outrage uh, to enough of an audience of people that that is more lucrative than just being sort of an arbiter of, of you know, the paper of record. Well, so are you saying that you, you view that towards the editorial page of the Times or the Times? No, the whole newspaper. See, I don't think that, like, I, I think there have been some very critical stories, for example, of tech companies, but I don't think there have been unfairly, or, or at least not many unfairly critical ones. I think most times coverage, at least of tech and business, is pretty much down the middle. And to be honest, most of it, you know, if you, I, I would think, and I admittedly have not done this, but if you were to truly do an analysis of every New York Times tech or business or even economic policy story, you know, not a column, but a story over the yeah. past year, most of them are pretty freaking boring and are, and are the, the what, who, and when, period. Yeah, and look, to a certain extent, arguably, the people who are reading the Times business and tech section are sort of the people who are least kind of captured by that, you know, you know, the one percentage running your life kind of mantra in the first place. Um, so maybe that's that's a place where they have a little more freedom to be objective. But Axios, you guys actually do manage to, from what I can tell, r remain relatively neutral and objective, and partly it's sort of the, the format that you use. Um, five years ago, when you chose to make this bet, 
uh, and help start this company. You know, what was your thinking behind it? And five years later, were you right? Were you wrong? A little bit of both? It's a good question. Let me just go back to one thing, and then, then I'll yeah. answer your question, which is vis-a-vis -vis Axios. You know, one in, in Twitter, one thing that um, – you know, the official uh, Twitter policy of Axios, I believe, is delete your account, which our former editor-in-chief had uh, on a piece of paper over his desk. But the, but the unofficial one is simply don't do anything that's going to screw over your colleagues. And I think this is important in media organizations, right? You know, if, if somebody, if anybody within Axios, whether they were in editorial or whether they were in engineering or in sales, were to tweet out, you know, fuck Donald Trump or fuck Joe Biden, that would be a disaster for our political reporters and, to be honest, for our credibility as a company. It, it would get used against everybody, including the people who are trying to cover the White House. And, and so I think that's kind of the, the mantra we've all tried to keep, and I think that's kind of important and, and hard for media organizations, but it's an important one. You know, as for joining Axios, um, it was two things. Uh, it was one, I had covered startups for a very long time, so it, it seemed like it was time to finally join one. Uh, you know, if, if the opportunity was right, and, and I'd had some good opportunities. But ultimately, um, it just seemed like a very smart group of people trying to figure out what they were going to do next. Uh, you know, when, when we think of Axios, the, the smart brevity part, the bullets and all that, none of that was figured out when I agreed to join. Uh, that came later. Uh, and part of it, to be honest, was Mike Allen, uh, who had been writing uh, the Politico Playbook newsletter for years. And I felt Mike was one of the really, you know, small handful of people in the world, or at least in the U.S., who had a similar... Um, journalistic schedule to me who, who had the same thing who had kind of a solo daily newsletter that was a combination of news and views and gossip a little bit that, that he'd put out every day he actually does his on the weekends too and and so I kind of thought that there was a little bit of a mind meld there and it would be fun to take a shot with them yeah and and from a would you say it's worked kind of the way that you were hoping that it would is it evolved in ways that are maybe good but not what you expected I mean, we're a lot bigger than I ever thought we would be. I mean, we're over 300, not ever, but but then I thought we would be five years in. I think we're over 300 employees. You know, most of it is the way I expected it. There's some things that, you know, we didn't expect. For example, um, Axios, we've launched these local sites. I think we're in... 10 cities right now will probably be in two dozen cities uh, by the middle of the year, uh, which are which are newsletters for cities like uh, Chicago and Des Moines, Iowa and Washington, D.C. That was that's a relatively new idea. And obviously, other organizations have tried local media and have failed. So, so yeah. this is our shot at it. I, I think we've got a, a good idea of what to do. And, and I think our eyes on the ball with it, but we'll see. There's a SaaS product as part of Axios, something called Axios HQ, which is really a way for companies to communicate internally. Sure didn't realize we were going to have a SaaS product uh, when we launched, but in general, yeah, I think it's worked. You know, we're a newsletter driven kind of short form uh, company um, and it's mostly worked. You know, we had an HBO show for a while that wasn't expected. We'll probably do something else in television as well. So we're evolving, but in general, the core of the company remains the same, which is to try to be as objective as we can and audience first uh, news. So your hometown of Boston in some ways feels like the, not even the forgotten the best tech, town but, there but, is. I agree. Right, well, oh, but, I agree so like, you, yeah, but it, 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 it's a town that has a much heavier tech presence than the attention that it then gets, right? Everyone's yep. always talking about Austin and Miami and obviously the Valley. Um, why is that? And is that deliberate? Do you think by kind of people in the Boston tech sector? Or? Oh no, they hate it. They 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 think they are uh, under uh, underappreciated. Well, okay, so two things I'd say. You know, if you go back to the 1980s, Boston, you know, arguably was the home of tech uh, in the U.S. Uh, you know, I, my mother worked on Route 128 at companies like Wang Labs and stuff like that. You know, one, Route 128, which is actually uh, outside of Boston, kind of north uh, west of Boston, that was you know the big corridor of tech. 
And then we kind of uh, took our eye off the ball and, and we were very much focused on uh, hardware and on-premise hardware, particularly companies like EMC, whereas the Valley, which obviously had hardware too with HP, et cetera, but really kind of jumped on internet technology and Boston was late with that. We were simply late. But yeah, we, we don't do a great job marketing ourselves. I think part of it is until recently, the city didn't have many huge tech wins, right? We had a lot of, you know, multi-billion dollar companies, but not a Facebook, not a Google. And, and, and when you don't have something like a Facebook or a Google, A, you don't get the attention and B, you don't get lots of teams of engineers spinning out to create the next new thing and the thing after that, et cetera. And, and we also aren't kind of sitting in some sort of media entertainment hub like New York or Los Angeles that, that kind of feeds on itself and gives itself attention for its own sake. I mean, for years, I would see stories about how, you know, New York was, you know, the next Silicon Valley and Boston-based companies were getting more funding than New York companies. They were producing more IPOs in New York companies, but, you know, most reporters were based in New York, so New York got more attention. Yeah. Um, is that something that you, like, you want to actually try to correct other than on, the, on this podcast, or do you feel like it works at the end of the day, kind of works just fine for Boston? No, I don't really care. Uh, you know, there's plenty of companies <laughs> that get funded here. I will say, I mean... I, I, and, and it's not like we're an ignore, you know, we're not a backwater ignored. I mean, there's a large percentage of VCs and founders who at least have kind of flowed through Harvard or MIT or something like that. So like, you know, they show up from time to time. Yeah. All right. Last question, uh, Boston also related. I was listening to Bill Simmons and his dad the other day debate the Mount Rushmore of Boston sports. Who would you put on it? I get four, right? You get four. All right. So my four would be Brady, Bobby yep. Orr, yep. Bill Russell. Yep. And this is this is controversial. I know in Boston because I know Ted Williams' greatest hitter ever, but I put Ortiz up there. Huh? I see. I thought you were going to go Pedro. I, I I loved Pedro. I'd I'd put Ortiz. I mean, three titles and 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 clutch hits in those titles. Probably was also on steroids or potentially on steroids, but nonetheless, you know, so was everybody in the era. No, I I think it's Ortiz, uh, and and I think he kind of changed the way people viewed baseball in Boston. Pedro came in a little earlier, but th they started winning when David showed up. And bi biggest omission, although you know nothing you can really do about it, would, would be Larry Bird. No, probably Ted Williams because he's probably the best hitter in the history of baseball. Got it. So, so you'd put Williams, I guess, and Bird would be the next, the next two, and then the, the, the drop yeah. off after that is is significant, right? Like, there's no other Patriot that I guess Gronk, but not not really. no, not Gronk. Yeah, it's, no, there's there's probably not another Patriot. Um, there's probably not another Bruin either. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, the Celtics, there, there's a bunch of them, right? There's a bunch of great Celtics, but none that probably go on the Mount Rushmore side. I mean, Tommy Heinsohn was an amazing player. Uh, Mikhail Parrish, there was a oh, lot sure. of them. Yeah. Uh, hell, Pierce. But no, I, I, I think it's uh, right. Russell won just because, what, he won like 16 titles or something like that. Oh, I think a, a, a insane. Yeah, I think he won 11 plus. I think he won in college as well. So, yeah. all right, that is, that's where it goes. Dan Pramick, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.